2: Hey everybody, thank you for checking out the Performance Anxiety Podcast on the Pantheon Podcast Network. I'm your host, Mark, and I want to thank our sponsor, AKG, for sending us their Podcaster Essentials Kit. It comes with a Lyra mic and a set of headphones, and if you've ever thought about starting your own podcast, the Podcaster Essentials Kit is the best way to do that. We're thrilled to have Jared Michael Nickerson as our guest. He grew up right in the middle of the funk capital of the world, Dayton, Ohio, and he talks about the effect that had on his life and how it shaped his music. He attended the University of Notre Dame, where one of the priests introduced him to the early works of Miles Davis. And there's also a pretty wild story of how he wound up with the bass that he's been playing for decades. After playing with bands like the Human Switchboard and The the, he joined Burnt Sugar, the orchestra chamber with Greg Tate, and helped shape the direction of the band. Jared shed some light on the conduction method that makes the band so unique and improvisational. He also reveals the difficulties of putting Burnt Sugar on vinyl. Give Jared and Burnt Sugar a follow on social media. They're pretty easy to find. Buy their new release, Angels Over Okanda, through Bandcamp or their website, BurntSugarIndex.com. Follow us at Performance ANX on social media. And you can support us through ko-fi.com slash performanceanxiety or performanceanx.threadless.com rate, review, tell a friend or two about the podcast. And thank you for tuning in to Jared Michael Nickerson on Performance Anxiety, part of the Pantheon Podcast Network.
0: Hi, I'm Jared Michael Nickerson with Burn Sugar, the Orchestra Chamber. I'm here to promote Angels Over Ocanda, our new release that's coming out. You're listening to me on Performance Anxiety Podcast. Hope y'all enjoy.
2: Thank you for coming on the the podcast. This is this is uh, should be, hopefully, a lot of fun. Uh, it, is for, it will be for me. Hopefully, it is for you, too. <laughs> I've been listening to a lot of your music, and there is no possible way for me to have listened to all of it because there's so freaking much of it. It's unreal the amount of stuff you've done. I am just... I was blown away by some of the, the albums you're on. But I want to know how you got to that point to start off with. Did you grow up in a house with a lot of music, or uh, were you the, the only one that was that was into music? I've, I've heard a lot of things going both ways. So where did you fall growing up?
0: Um, I probably fell in the middle, a little bit further to the side of music, okay. as my grandfather had my aunt and my mother play violin. Oh. So they had, uh, you know, they had a little bit of music in their lives. And then because of that, my mother definitely had, had music in my life.
2: And you are a bass player. I am. Was that the instrument that you started off with, or was there something else?
0: No, no, she started me off on pay- piano, because basically I wanted to be a drummer for at first and she was like well that's fine but i think i'd like you to have some uh, a little bit of knowledge about just music in general so before i could even get my first drum kit i had to take seven years of piano seven years yeah wow now i was a little kid now so you know it wasn't like you know she was really depriving me or anything you know yeah so um So I did that, and lo and behold, by the time the seven years had passed, I sort of had expanded my my view, my musical view, and was playing guitar but would always play single notes, wouldn't play chords. And noticed that really I was probably, you know, sort of like, sort of drifting towards maybe becoming a bassist. So in high school, I kind of was fortunate and able to be able to blend the fact that um, in symphonic band I was a percussionist. My senior year in high school, I was in the marching band as a drummer, oh, wow. and I played bass in the jazz band.
3: Oh my gosh!
0: So you know, I, I sort of like with having the harmonic foundation from piano. Then my work in, in high school in the symphonic band and the marching band as a drummer is sort of allowed me to to have the foundation of what makes, in my opinion, a great bass player.
2: Okay. And this this is all happening in the the Dayton, Ohio area. That's where you grew up.
0: All happening in Dayton, Ohio. I was born in Cleveland. But my mom, um, she obtained a job at the Veterans Administration as a radioisotope chemist. Oh, so we wow. moved to Dayton.
3: That's amazing. Oh, wow. Yeah, she's
2: pretty great. Yeah. <laughs> I love great moms.
0: Yeah, me too.
2: When did you start playing out on your own with, with people in bands that you were creating and not just school bands?
0: Well, the, the funny thing about Dayton as, I mean, it's, it's known as sort of like really probably the funk capital of the world yeah. at this point. And everything that happened there sort of happened organically. Like there were great music programs and great music teachers in all the high schools. All the high schools had three to four talent shows every year. Oh, wow. So you could be a a youngster, and whereas, you know, you've probably heard other stories where folks said they had to sneak into clubs as they were underage and things of that nature. We didn't have to worry about that. Oh, wow. (laughs) You know, we we had at least 12 opportunities to play on a stage in front of people in high schools, in the talent shows. And the talent shows were taken very seriously. And, you know, back in those days where we're talking like the um, talking like the late 60s and, and things of that nature, you you know, you, you sort of emulated the, the Temptations, the Supremes and James Brown. Yeah. So you would have these bands that would be like fully decked out. They'd have moves <laughs> they'd like, you know, they'd have a James Brown impersonator come out, do a few songs and they'd be like the MC introduce the, your singing group for you for your particular group, and then bring out the the, the Temptation-type group. And you'd have, like, 15 minutes to put on, like, a little review. Wow. And so there were, like, all these bands that were, got to be very serious about this, and we would compete from, you know, from Roosevelt to, to Dunbar to Roth High School and, and go around the circuit. And then you had, of course, like like most other black communities, you had music in the church. Mm-hmm. So the combination, Mark, of the music in the church, these talent shows, plus the fact that in Dayton, Dayton back in those days um, was actually very well-to-do okay. because there was a lot of industry. There was like Inland Steel, there was National Cash Register, uh-huh. there were all the car companies, and... It was Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Oh, yeah. So you had a number of families, two, house, you know, two household and two earning, two, two earning leaders of the household. Right. The families basically were doing fairly well financially. I'm being modest with that. Yeah. And so because of that, a lot of them, what they did, they tricked out their basements into like full entertainment dens. And as kids, we would just go from a parent's den to den and just jam.
3: Oh, man.
0: And the parents were very cool with it, even though I'm sure it was noisy. <laughs> and, and I can't even maybe it was avant-garde at the same time. <laughs> but um, at least they knew where we were.
3: Yeah,
2: exactly. So
0: they were very happy about this. So, so the, just the whole, like, that whole scene melded into the fact that, that, and then you have the fact that people like the Ohio Players, they started off, you know, on um, Westbound Records, and that's when they were led by Junie Morrison. Okay. And there was a there was a venue called uh, Lakeside, and, and it was like basically an amusement park that also had a pavilion, where, which was part of the Chitlin Circuit.
3: Oh, wow. And okay. so
0: all the all the major bands would come through there, but the Ohio Players would usually be the band that would warm up. We I mean, the first band to come out. I and know. warm up was the exact perfect phrase. Oh, yeah? Because the players would warm them up. And then, <laughs> and then everybody who had to follow basically had like, well, what just happened? Yes. This is supposed to be our show. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, the, you know, the players even played like my high school Halloween games stuff like that. So that's how local there was the Ohio Players, there were the Majestics, there were the Imperials, there was Lakeside, they were called Lakeside Express at that time, there was Roger Troutman. His family, um, Troutman Enterprises, basically were a construction home refurbishing company. So they always had money, and when Roger started as, I believe, a Hendrix impersonator, him and his him and his cousins and everybody in the band, they always had the latest custom equipment with those vinyl covers and, and just I mean they were always decked out. Oh um, man and so you know you, you have that and then when when um, the way the players the players that released their first nationally their first national hit record which was Skin Title Mercury. Okay. Basically, yeah. that was really a combination of two bands. That oh, really? was a combination of the original high Players, and there was a, another band that was really hot in Dayton called Overnight Low. And what happened was Overnight Low had Diamond and Chet Willis as the leaders of that band. Oh, okay. And something happened. I was too young to be a part of this. I don't know what happened. but well, for some reason, they decided to change rhythm sections. And... Oh. Um, Chet and Diamond came over to the players and um trying to remember my Greg Greg Gregory Webster was the drummer in the players at that time. He moved over to overnight low and, and um wow two other players. And then that Ohio players with, with which was new with Billy Beck, um Diamond, and um Chet Willis, that was the one that put out Skin Tight. And then of course, you know, after Skin Tight is they were an international Hit making band.
2: Yeah, they were huge. So you grew up with all of this around you. So, you know, yeah. and, and so you're absorbing all of this. But when did you decide that music was a calling for you, something that, that you wanted to do as, as a profession? Was it, I know you did uh, study in Notre Dame.
0: Yeah. Was that yeah, for yeah. music? No, actually, that wasn't. Um, And you know what? I have to say, I was so in love. And it's probably similar to like, you know, you talk to those young kids who like play basketball or football. And at the time, they don't realize that maybe only 10 out of, you know, 2,000 make it professionally. But, But it's a passion for them. And it's all they can see. I'd have to say it was probably a passion for me it just made me happy to do. And I enjoyed it so much that I didn't even really, I mean, you know, I did all the goofy stuff that young kids do. <laughs> I, I would put the put the amplifier up on the bed and stand in front of the mirror with, with my bass and play along to the <laughs> records. I did all the goofy stuff. And so, and did it all with not really thinking of, you know, well, this is going to be my lifelong profession did it just because I was just so in love with R&B and rock and roll and and just the whole idea of of being a, a performer. Wow. You know, so... So what did you so study yeah. at Notre Dame then? What would what, you go there for? I went and I, I took business management. Oh, okay. And what happened was... I went to Catholic high schools all throughout my my elementary and high school education. Okay. So it, it, it did it it served me very very well. And when it came time to go to college, it was right on the the dawn of when all those bands were getting signed in Dayton. Okay. And I was in the mix with a number of those players. And I was I would have been very happy to just have stayed home and mm-hmm. and tossed my you know. Tossed the dice to see what, what would happen, but my mother was having none of it. <laughs> she wasn't having it. I received a number of different scholarships, wow. and because of that, plus the scholarship from Notre Dame, the combination of them all pretty much made my ride free.
2: That's amazing. Yeah.
0: And nothing to do with athletics. It was all scholastic. So it, she, I won't say she forced me, but I'll say she forced me. <laughs> she said... You have to take this take advantage of this opportunity, yeah, because you know you are a young man and you'll have your whole life ahead of you. I was mad at the time oh but but I'm so thankful today, yeah but so you, thankful today
2: you did meet someone very influential there uh one of the the uh fathers there who one of the priests who helped in your musical career.
0: Father was Kirk and, yes, and he helped he, a lot of other people too, right. Yes, he did. He, um, when he, he was brought there actually to start a jazz department. Oh, wow. And he was brought there from a high school, I believe in Chicago, whose name, um, I wouldn't be able to tell you Right. Um, but it two of, two of the, um, members of the Chicago, the band, the horn section were in his high school classes. Wow. He taught them. So, I mean, it's through, was through father was coaching that basically he was going to introduce me to Miles.
3: Really? Wow. I
0: didn't I didn't know Miles as far as his kind of blue and sketches of Spain. Mm-hmm. His um from from those records. Yeah, was groundbreaking Miles, records. Oh yeah, I knew Miles from his electric records.
3: Oh, okay.
0: That's you know, Bitches Brew and Get Up with all those all those get up with all those yeah. records. That's what introduced me to Miles and then I went back just to realize just uh, how, how much of a bad I can't say that yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. or can I say that you can say it well how much of a badass Miles really was that's you awesome know, you know yeah. so so in so in college here I am and I'm, I'm a little you know disgruntled as I as I mentioned
3: yeah
0: and I'm thinking I don't want to take anything that's so hard that I won't be able to play music and then I don't want to take something that will be of no use to me once I graduate because okay. why did I come here for four years
3: right right.
0: So that's why I took business okay and while I was while I was in um college at Notre Dame I played in some of the local like party bands. I played in the jazz band. in fact I still remember the name of our combo. It was Erg's Finger Circus and, uh... Oh man, that is a great name. Thank you. <laughs> that's, oh. that's the 70s for you, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love it. So, you know, I played played in, in, in a combo and also played in the big band. I was able to get my reading and and a few other things together because of that. And then when I graduated, I realized that I wanted to actually maybe try to obtain some some real musical education, and through father's referrals, I was able to send in audition tapes and, and you know all my background information, and I was accepted to um, Tulane University's music department. Wow. I was accepted to Berklee School of Music and New England Conservatory both oh, wow. in Boston. And checking them out, I decided to go to New England because it seemed first thing. What was really attractive about New England is they had a third stream department that was led by Rand Blake. Okay. And third stream was was fairly new then, but basically what it was is it was sort of a a stream of consciousness away from what is usually expected musically. Okay. And it was something that that I, that really resonated with me since. I was going to even though it was the jazz department, really those schools back then were really classical music right, schools. Right. And really their bread and butter was really um classic pianists. Okay. So I mean there had to be maybe three floors with maybe twenty pianos on a floor just like constantly, day and night, kids in there just working on their music and everything. Oh, wow. as, you know, So the jazz department was fairly new, but but it was was very good for me. And I even had to, because that it was basically a classical school, I had to take up stand-up bass. I had to take up acoustic bass. I couldn't just play electric, even though I had only played electric up to that point. Oh, wow. So I had to learn how to bow. I decided on the German style of bowing. And so that was... I didn't even know there were different styles of bowing. The others are French. And there's German, and it's all the way you position your hand with the ball and stuff. So what that did sort of like illuminate is the fact that I was an electric bass player. (laughs) I have small hands. And if you even look at some of the bass players back in the 50s, like Paul Chambers and all of them, most of them have huge hands. Oh, really? Because you have to, to really get around that instrument. But it, it, had, it had the benefits of the fact that with my small hands, for me to, to, to do my, my classwork and the hours that I had to spend working, you know, because when you, when, you when you bow a note, you have to actually hold the, the string down firmly against the tension of the bow. Okay. It built up my hand muscles to the point that when I went back to electric bass, It was like butter. Oh, wow. It was amazing. So I went to New England for two years and then realized I had pretty much gotten what I needed. And that's when I started my professional career with a band there by the name of Hypertension.
3: Okay.
2: And how long were you playing with Hypertension? And was that that strictly like a a funk band or what, what kind of music were you guys playing?
0: It was strictly a funk band. Okay. And back then in Boston there was a, a large Canadian cover band circuit. Oh, wow. And these places were like, you know, in Montreal, Quebec City, um, Toronto, all over. And basically what they would do is they would hire a band for two weeks. They would lodge you and feed you, and then you'd play three sets a night in their club. And if you were really, really good between that and just the whole cover band scene throughout New England, you can actually make a living playing cover music. Oh, wow. So we entered, we were in that. And once again, my, my business degree came in handy in that I handled the business for the band. Oh, nice. So we didn't have to deal with an agent. We didn't have an agent or a manager taking 30% off the top. Wow. And I did all the arrangements and we would, you know, we started to actually become very, very popular in boston till we um attracted the attention of a man by the name of lion underwood may he rest in peace okay who was part of the underwood devil ham family oh wow yeah yeah and so you know you can imagine the money involved there oh there's lots of money in pork man are you kidding me so, so to to say he was well off is, is' not to even say anything.
2: yeah, that's a bit of an understatement
0: so we um we went from like playing on stage in our street clothes and riding in the back of the truck with the equipment to riding in limos, having five changes of handmade outfits <laughs> um <laughs> it, it it was we had a rehearsal complex that we had access to, oh my God, um. It even led me to the to the bass I play today. In the fact that um, myself and one of the guitarists, we went to visit these these young ladies, and we were in a company car. Company had company even had cars. Oh my gosh! And before we before we left rehearsal, we we had set our instruments on the floor, it you know in the back seat. Okay. And so so then when we come out from visiting these young ladies, the car had been broken into. And, of course, our instruments were, had been stolen. Aww. So totally our fault. But Lyman was the kind of cat where he said, like, well, you know, let's see what I can do. And he actually took me out and introduced me personally to a man by the name of Mike Padula, who's the, um, he was the founder, owner, and luther of Padula Bass. And so I, I have, like, I think the 124th Padula Bass ever made. Oh wow! And when I right before I started my road tour with um, the the, they were nice enough to work out a deal where I was able to get a five string thunder bass and a four string thunder bass, which were which was their new model at the time back then. And um, the four string thunder bass is what I play to this day.
3: Oh
2: wow!
3: Yeah, man, that is amazing.
0: It's it's blessed, man. Just things, you know, certain things happen to you. And I won't even say it's about, you know, you, you can't even say what it is. You're just fortunate sometimes to be in a situation where even in when there's sort of like, you know, some kind of a tragic occurrence, some kind of silver lining comes out of it. Yep. And so, you know, and I can say that even with hypertension, because after. I started with them, you see, I graduated from Notre Dame in 71, stayed in um, NEC to like about 73, and then went full, you know, put all my chips in with hypertension, and in 1980, they basically kicked me out the band. Really? And it, it was something probably that was brewing for a while, because I joined the band, Two bass players tried out when their bass player left, and the one ba- the other bass player was the best friend of the drummer.
3: Oh. and
0: I was a very good friend of the keyboardist Jerry Clay, who was also writing um their original songs ah oh, okay, and he basically voted for me, and that's how I got in the band so. We actually started to play originals. I started to write for the band. Everybody started to write. And we started to like mix in our originals with the, with the cover tunes. And we're, and we're doing very, very well. As I said, we, we got hooked up with Lyman. Yeah. Started to do even better. And I think the two the two leaders of the band sort of felt if there was any time, that was the perfect time to sort of like get rid of me and get the bass player in that the drum that the drummer had liked
2: oh you know, the,
0: the drummer's friend.
2: Gimme one second. My dog just broke out of his uh the room he was <laughs> we, we he was in to run down the stairs and bark out the front window at <laughs> something. It's pitch black outside. I don't know what the oh,
0: oh they can see and smell. They can oh. especially smell.
2: Yeah he's all right, I think he's gone.: All right. Sorry about that.:
0: No worries, no worries. So all right, So, so they kicked me out. Yeah. And I immediately, within like, six months no, not even six months I'd say with excuse me, but I was going to say six weeks, um, was back in Dayton, Ohio. And that led me to be introduced to a, a gentleman by the name of Dean Hummonds. Okay. who was the keyboardist in um, the band's son. And they put out a number of records on Capitol. And he was also in Dayton with Sean um, Sandridge, I believe. And they had like a hit by the name of Cutie Pie and a few other tunes. And Dean had a four-track studio in his basement. Oh, neat. And he, he um, got wind of a Sony records, a, a Sony... Um, records contract contest where they asked you to submit like four or five songs, and if you won, you would you would you receive would you would receive a recording contract with Sony. Oh, wow. So he invited myself on bass. He had um Roger Parker, who was the the drummer who took over for Steve Arrington when Steve Arrington moved out to be the lead vocalist in Slaves. Roger oh. became the drummer. Okay. Um, he had Chris Bowman, who, who we had known from playing in Dayton. And now Chris actually plays with the Ohio Players. Oh, wow. um, he had um, Jenny Douglas, who has been Pink, one of Pink's background singers for maybe the last 15 or 20 years. Oh, I mean, she's, wow. she's you know, a regular with, with Pink. And so we had us all come in and, and cut some tunes. And um, we sent them in. And we didn't win. Oh. So, so, (laughs) but what happened out of that is that there was a band in Cleveland by the name of Human Switchboard. Mm -hmm. Which was led by Bob Pfeiffer and Myrna Markarian, and Ron Metz was the drummer. They would come to Dayton all the time to play. And one time, I guess, Drack from Slave got up on stage and jammed with them, and they loved it so much that they asked you know would he cut some some tracks with them and that's how dean was introduced to human switchboard okay well human switchboard was in dayton doing some some recording and they had a gig at a place called walnut hills and their bass player up in cleveland didn't want to come down for the gig
3: oh geez
0: dean recommended me we spent a day and learned a number of songs And um, Dean and myself accompanied um, Myrna, Bob, and Ron, and did the gig, and they loved it. And everybody loved it, the audience, and we loved it. Yeah. And four months, I mean, excuse me, four weeks later, I received a call from Bob asking if I wanted to join the band. Oh, nice. And that's how I got in the switchboard.
2: We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. I want to take a minute and talk about our sponsor, Tiesta Tea. Tiesta is a tea company on a mission to create loose-leaf tea beverages with premium ingredients that taste good and do good. Each tea is blended for one of five categories, so you can energize, slenderize, boost antioxidants, boost immunity, and relax. My current favorite is blueberry wild chow. You know, when I was growing up, my dad always told me, once you go loose, you never go bagged. You know what? He was right. Go to com and use the promo code ANXIETY15 at checkout to get 15% off your order. Think you know tea? You haven't tried Tiesta tea. How long were you in Human Switchboard for?
0: They were together for eight years, and I was in the last four years. Okay. So actually, I got to experience all the cream. Yeah. Um... <laughs> Yeah, we would come up and um, we would play, we'd come to the East Coast and we'd play Maxwell's Wilson, Hoboken. Yeah. We'd do, if not all three, at least two of either um, CBGB's, the Peppermint Lounge, and interior. We'd go to Boston and do the Rad of Storyville. Oh. We'd go to um, D.C. and do the 930 Club. Yep. So we'd come up and do like about, you know, a week and a half, two weeks of touring and then bring East Coast money back to the Midwest, nice. which it stretched very, very long yeah. in the Midwest. <laughs> and then we'd come back and, and do some more dates. And we wow. became popular enough that we became one of the New Year's Eve bands in New York. Really? And so so the money was really, really good.
2: You, you've mentioned some of the other bands that you worked with, like The The. See, so you, you've done work with Darlene Love, Freddie Johnston. Gary Lucas and Jeff Buckley... How did you get into working with some of these people? Were you doing like session work, or were you just being asked to just join in on on uh, live gigs? How did you meet up with so many different styles of, of artists?
0: Well, first of all, it's 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 like um, where do they say the um what do they say about availability? The best the best yeah. skill is to be available, <laughs> and, That's and true. so you have you have to be in the area. And the fact that I, I played in switchboard. It introduced me to a lot of other musicians, and a lot of the other musicians got to know me from that context. Okay. So from that context, not only did I meet musicians, but I, I met other managers. And um, you, you meet, you know, you meet the like Kelly Crystal and Louise and CB's, They were they were friends. Yeah. You know, yeah. They, they we weren't business associates, and and so. Then um, Living Colors managers Jim Grant and Roger Kramer became friends. So so once you know once you get into into that that kind of a circle, then that's when you know auditions start to come around and and people put your name out for certain things and and that's and that's how you and that's how you at least get the opportunity to play with those people.
2: I mean, were you joining the bands or was it just kind of helping out for recording sessions or was it something in between?
0: It was, it it varied. I mean, you know, I was, uh, the thing with Gary Lucas was special in the fact that Gary has a really, really strong finger-picking style. And finger-picking is based off of the thumb the thumb usually will play the bass note with the other fingers, sort of like arpeggiating the chord, yes. things of that nature. Yeah. So, and, and to this day, I'm, I've always been basically a thumb bass player. I never was a two-finger bass player. Oh, okay. So, so with that, my style sort of like really fell in line with Gary's style because we would sit in his living room and just play through tunes I mean, night after night, hour after hour. Oh, wow. And I would just sort of like really mimic his, his thumb placements. And then we just became really, really tight without there being anybody else around. And so then when it came time to cut his first record, I mean, if you listen to tunes like um, A Whip Named Lash or Glow World, yeah. you, can, you, you can hear just how tight the two of us are as from hours and hours just playing So you know that that was kind of like a band, and that kind of all dissolved because of the Jeff Buckley incident. What did? did, did him him um, working with Jeff Buckley, oh. but then that led me to, to other things. It's, okay. it's, you know, I mean, when that dissolved, basically that led me to Freddie Johnston. And Freedy, I did Can You Fly? And then we started to tour. And then even when Freedy had his national contracts, what would happen is he used two bass players. He used Graham Maybe, who basically, are you familiar with Graham? No, I'm not. Graham Maybe is like the original bassist. He's, He's Joe Jackson's bass player. Oh, okay. So from anything that Joe Jackson did, that's Graham is on that. So Graham had that as his rock and roll foundation, okay. which, as you know, to this day is very lucrative to him. Oh, yeah. I, you know, so Graham actually produced Can You Fly, um, Freedy's second record on Bar None, and played half of it, and I played the other half. Oh, wow. And okay. so then when Freedy was from you know, the strength of Can You Fly, signed to um, Electra, I believe, Electra Records. Um he used Graham in the studio, but whenever he would go out on the road, if Graham was off with Joe Jackson or someone, then he would use me. So I was able to get a lot of touring in with Freedom. And in fact, to tell you a story, we were just on the, the tail end of the second of, of the second of a nine-month tour. We had done nine months taken a month off, and did another nine. Wow. And about two weeks before coming home, I received a call from Roger Kramer asking if I wanted to audition for a band called The The. I didn't know who The The was. Right. So I checked, you know, I checked around and listened to a few tunes, and I really listened to the record that, that they were going to be supporting, which was Dusk. Okay. And James Eller, who's, who was the original The The bass player, the bass lines he played on that record really resonated with me okay you know that's that's very important that i i it wasn't i I wasn't forced into doing things just to keep a gig. My business background allowed me to to actually use that, whereas I worked for a temp service mm-hmm. you know and things of that nature that I, I, I never had to take a gig because that was the only way I could make money.
3: Okay, yeah.
0: And so that was another sort of like side, you know, built-in advantage that when you're young, you don't see. But of course, now as time has passed, you see how that was invaluable to be amongst your skill set.
3: Yeah. Thanks,
2: Mom. And,
0: yeah, amen. <laughs> Thank you, Mom. So, so, you know, once again... What happened was the day that we was, I was supposed to come in for the audition, it was three days before I'd actually be back in New York. So I had to decline. Okay. And then a snowstorm happened that weekend in New York, and Matt couldn't fly out. Ah. And since we were on the road, of course, we made it back to New York. And he was nice enough to to set up one before he left, like the following Monday. I went in. I got the gig. Wow. I got the gig. Oh, that's awesome. And um that that really you know when I when I was out with Fredie, we we were doing high profile gigs as far as the bands we were playing with. Because yeah. we would do we would do like three band shows with um um it'd be like Soul Asylum and The Chills. And um, um, Evan Dando's band, um, oh,
2: the Lemonheads. Yes,
0: the Lemonheads. Okay. You know, we 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 would um be on and all this book by Frank Riley. Okay. Um, and who was who was like you know sort of like the king of the independent rock back in those days. So we did great bills. Yeah. But the type of rock and roll, the the, the arenas, the type of rock and roll venues. I was able to experience with the, the. and then not only was just them but when we opened up for depeche mode for four months wow and this is when they had um walking in my shoes when they had that hit oh. so we were playing arenas i mean two nights sold out at madison square garden the toronto sky dome wow um, a week at the a week at the felt forum in in la um you name it we played at red rocks you, you you know we played them all and that that was that's a different world uh, yeah I that's a different it. world man and so getting getting to see that and also meet people along the way yeah it's, it's just all been you know beneficial i said
2: <laughs> and is this about this time when you started working with the black rock coalition
0: Actually, that was um. It let's see the Black Rocks. Landed. It was about the time. yeah. Okay. So what were yeah. you doing with them? Um. Well, I went to a few meetings because I was intrigued, mm-hmm. and basically there were a few things that were happening. First of all, it didn't start off as as a um, a musicians organization. Oh. It started off as like a black arts organization. Okay. And there were painters and writers and poets and everyone. And basically, they, they were just sharing their experiences as to how hard the grind was to, to make a profession out of. Right. And trying to brainstorm as to what they could do to, to assist each other oh, cool. in that regard. And the light bulb that immediately went off often on top of my head, was the fact that a, a few of the musicians were talking about CBGB's um, new band policy. And basically what their new band policy was, is they had, I believe it was Sunday nights was like audition night. And if you, if you, if you were able to get on a Sunday night, they actually graded you. And they graded you by um, how how well they thought you played okay. they graded you on your timeliness were you on time were you courteous to the to the staff were you know did you play your set length the right length get on and get off on time and they graded you on how many people you brought in Oh wow And supposedly if you did well in those three categories, then what they would do is they would start to work you in. On, on their other bills. And you know, back then CB sometimes had six bands a night. Yeah. With a headliner. So you could actually like come in as like an opening act and start to develop, you know, your audience and your craft till you could become a headliner if things went well. Or you could play with you know, you could be like the, the act right before the headliner when the when the place was jam packed. Yeah. And and you know things of that nature. So you know the audition nights were were a a nice apple offered to bands, but what these what what the uh, the black band leaders were telling me was that they would they would meet all the all the requirements, but they would never get that call to start on the treadmill. Oh wow! And you know that didn't sound like the Hilly and the Louise that I knew. Yeah, you know. So I went down there and talked to them about this, and basically. What we arranged was in my discussions with them, I was able to set up their very first multi-day festival. Oh, cool. It was called Greg Tate entitled The Stalking Heads, and we did two nights in a row, and Living Color played, I and I played. So we had a super band that had um, Dr. Noah and Michael Hampton, Dr. No of the Bad Brains and Michael Hampton and Ronnie Drayton yeah. were in like a super band, oh, um, Cookie Watkins, yeah, Cookie Watkins. We had all kinds. So it went really, really well. Yeah. We packed the place oh, for two nights. Man. And at that point, they could actually see that there was money in having black rock bands yes. in the club. And once you can illuminate to a club owner that they'll make money with you, then it's it's a lot easier. Yeah. And it became a lot easier for bands to, to get booked in CBs after that. Oh, that is awesome.
2: When did you start playing? Or I, I guess maybe the, the better way to, to phrase that is how did Burnt Sugar, the orchestra chamber, come together?
0: Um, well, I'd have to say that, to my recollection, to, from, from my viewpoint, the first Burnt Sugar, the orchestra chamber, first came together in Greg Tate's mind. Okay. Because he was enamored with um, monstie butch morris's conduction system i wanted to ask you about that yeah Yeah. so butch basically he um started off as a um play, playing cornet jazz cornet but then he became he got interested in conducting okay and actually actually classical conductor and as he was going through the through the process he, I guess the story is one day he asked one of his teachers if they, if he got this, this, you know, to the sixth page of the score and wanted to just work on, like, a 12-bar section, how could he do that? And his teacher told him basically you can't do that because uh-huh. everybody is taught basically to read from the beginning of the score to the end of the score. That's okay. just the way it goes. And he says, well, I have to find a way to do that and that's when he developed the conduction system so what he was able to do is he had different signals and he could get to a certain part in the score go off the page with his signals and then create new music using that say like maybe that that one bar or that or those you know two bars as a motif create new music with that through hand signals and then bring the band back to the page to continue where they had stopped. Wow. Uh, he was doing this in a classical context, but Greg wanted to do it in the context of electric miles. And so he, he, um, it was myself, um, Vijay Ayer, um, Trevor Holder on drums, Ronnie Drayton on guitar, um, a woman by the name of Simi Stone on violin, Bruce Mack also on keyboards. He got us together in a rehearsal room to try it out you know him conducting it as following his conduction yeah and the great thing about conduction is if you play a score if you play s- scripted music you have to really you have to also have the technical ability to play that music yeah and there's, so there will be some music that maybe at the beginning and maybe never that you you won't be able to play cuz just you're not Technically, technically proficient enough to do that. But in conduction, you're only bringing what you can play and then letting the conductor mold that into something. So no one is asked to be uncomfortable within their personal musical realm.
3: Ah, uh, wow, okay.
0: Which is why it's such a great tool and, and doesn't, doesn't have to have any kind of, of level of musicianship to be able to to use and, and create music with, and and so with that, you're allowed your your personality comes out in the music, and then and then Greg sort of like melds it. You know, it's, it's just like if you have five waving fingers, and then Greg through conduction makes it into a fist, and then just starts to 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 you know beat the beat the ground with sonic sonic you know forces coming out yeah. of, out of that fist yeah. it's it's um we loved it we loved it we did another rehearsal and then we took it right to cbgb's underground for the first two gigs
3: oh, we man. did
0: two gigs we loved those people who were there loved it and we went right into the studio in 99 and cut blood on the leaves the first record
2: which i mean that that debut is just incredible it it, it possibly one of the best debut albums I've ever heard from anybody. Even in the live, especially the early stuff, was it improvisational while you were recording it or while you're playing it Or was, was it a lot of it planned out and then hand signals help telling you what, what, where to go? And
0: what was, what was it like? None of it was planned out. Wow. None of it was planned out. It, it was all pretty much conducted. And Greg sometimes would have a few sonic templates because, you know, he also plays guitar. Okay. So he he might have a few sonic templates that he would play ahead for us, yeah. but then after that was really just a sort of like to give to give everybody an idea. But then everybody was allowed to create, and he would after we would get going, then he would conduct us through different f- phases of of a particular jam, and then afterwards he went into the studio with um, Peter Carl, whose studio was where we recorded that, and who was the engineer. And he would cut and paste things together. He would maybe, if we played for 15 minutes, find a six-minute segment that he really liked and invite some players to come in and overdub over that.
3: Oh, man.
0: So it it was, yeah.
2: So it was a lot, almost, it's almost like a sound collage.
0: Yes, exactly.
2: And I noticed the band does have a motto. It's never playing anything the same way once. Yes, Which I think is
0: awesome. I mean, we, we we were able to do some touring and even international touring, going to places and they didn't know what we'd be playing.
2: <laughs> Did you guys know what you'd be playing?
0: No, <laughs> no, and they paid us for that. That's and amazing. they paid us for that. That is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> but that no, I mean the thing that I think that really that really pushed that record through was the fact that it received a really really big write up in the wire. Oh. And back then, The Wire was kind of like the Bible yeah. of experimental music. And when we received, like, you know, um, a glowing review and a full cover photo, I mean, not, I mean a, f- a full article photo, then basically cutting-edge presenters around the world wanted burnt sugar. Yeah. And so we were able to do a lot of really, really cool gigs because of that.
2: What I find so amazing about them, the albums is that you guys in 20 years you put out 18 albums 18 releases and, and they're not just like just eps or i mean you've got one that's a triple album i mean there's just so much and it's all just so interesting i mean you've got some super long songs that are that are incredibly inventive and engaging like uh like matume part one or the entire no direction home suite it's that suite is just gorgeous but my favorite is part seven It's so beautiful, and then it just kind of sounds like it's about to go off the rails with the the samples and and the weird clips coming in, and the, but then it, it all just kind of comes back together. And then you've also got songs that are six seconds long, which is just it's it's incredible. Just the range that the band
3: has.
0: Yeah.
2: And there's a song that really. I absolutely love it. Mermaid, Angels, and Rainbows. That sounds like it, it's a tribute to Hendrix. Was that, did, was that how it was presented to you guys? Is that how you, how
0: you guys played it? Um, I don't. That was probably really a, a great question. Okay. Because I don't really know what was in his mind when he wrote that. But, um, but the performance would...
2: sounds like it could be something from a Hendrix album.
1: Have seen a mermaid. Ain't like a stone, ain't fall like
3: never so, many men. so little time,
1: The down to the next down I hear
0: you, I hear you. But, but you know, he never came to us and, and, and would ever say, he's never said anything like, sound like this. Okay. You know, he, he, he allowed, he would just, now I'm not, I'm not saying what his influences are. Right. And the great thing about the band is we, we had both been in bands where we had to wear both hats. We had to be like the musical director and the business manager. Yeah. And that is just really an unwieldy job. I don't really wish that on anyone because it's a tough one to handle.
3: I'm sure.
0: Um, usually, if, if something goes, you know, wonky in the business, it bleeds into you being still angry about it in the music. If things go bad in the music, then you might be vindictive in the business because, you know. And and so we were smart enough and had done enough that we realized, why not take advantage of both of our strengths, Whereas Greg's strength is sort of you know conceptually and artistically, and, and my strength is with business matters. Yeah. So we created Burnt Sugar. When Burnt Sugar, I mean, he founded Burnt Sugar, and and brought the first bands together. But when we decided to incorporate and develop Burnt Sugar Index LLC, that's when we both became co-leaders. And he takes care of church, which is artistic, yeah. and I take care of state which is all business.
2: That's awesome. Oh, man. When it comes to the, the songs themselves, is Greg writing the music or, or is everybody contributing their own parts to the, the what's on the records?
0: It's a combination of both. Okay. It's a combination of both. Sometimes he'll come in with um, uh, pretty much the music figured out. Other times maybe he'll come in with a chord sketch and allow people just to play what they want to play yeah. and other times we'll just we'll just start jamming and when he hears something that he likes he'll have us freeze on that section and develop that into a song
2: oh cool okay when did you uh start working with uh Band of gypsies revisited how did that all form with Vernon Reed because that's I listen to some of the the performances you guys have done and it's so interesting. It's it's like a completely different take on Hendrix's music.
0: Vernon is like that. Vernon has never really liked the fact that as a black guitarist, a lot of people like to immediately associate you with Hendrix. Like the reason you play guitar is because of Hendrix. Right, yeah, I can understand that. he's, He's never been one of that camp. And it just so happened that there was a gig in New Jersey that was put on by a promoter by the name of Bill White, and he actually wanted to do a Hendrix tribute with Michael Hampton uh-huh. and wanted to know if I wanted to play with Michael in the band. Okay, But he couldn't really close the negotiation with Michael, and he was stuck. He had the date, he had everything, but he didn't have a band. Oh, wow. So I, I, I said, well, let me ask Vernon. And Vernon says, "Like was well, one off, yeah, let's do it." So, and then he brought in the drummer James Biscuit Rouse, yeah, who's 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 a badass. Yeah, he is. And Andre LaSalle on guitar. And and the thing about Andre is Vernon will tell you, Andre is the guitarist who showed him how to properly play Little Wing. Oh, Cause really? Because Andre is is very very into Hendrix. I mean, down to really knowing. The nuts and bolts as to how he would play things. Wow! And so bringing Andre in the band, we had sort of like this Hendrix foundation with Biscuit in the band. We not only do we have a killer drummer, but but in trying to do Band of Gypsies right, we had a killer drummer who's also a killer vocalist, like Buddy Miles. Yeah. And and then of course we had Vernon, and Vernon didn't want it. You know, so so you know, the easiest thing to do is to play those tunes as is, and, and they're so eclectic as they are, they'd still be great. Yeah. But that wouldn't really be true to, that, that wouldn't shine a light on us at all. And so we basically went in and, and revised, revised the tunes in, in, in our light. And we had um, such a great time that night. Place was packed. Oh. People loved it that um, we had an offer for another place in, um, I can't remember what part of Massachusetts, but we did a second show there. And that went really well. And then we were approached by a booking agent. So we, we, um, we were able to actually make some money doing it, play some really nice gigs. But I, I have to say, I, I think that we took it as far as we could take it. OK. And since it's not a, a lifelong, we all have other sort of, you know, day to day musical assignments and musical groups we work with that that's probably it's probably in the dust. Yeah. So I'm I- glad that there's are those those recordings of it. But I have to tell you, we had a really good time with the people who came out to the show.
2: I would I can tell because I was watching some of the videos. First of all, the version of, of Purple Haze you guys did was so cool. But I loved the, the, the video of Who Knows that I saw. That cracked me. Somebody in the audience is, is talking about Sally. And you guys, yeah. just, it's amazing to me to watch the entire band start laughing, but continue to play and play well. You guys yeah. are just laughing your asses off, having a great time, but the music is still great. I loved it.
0: The people were very cool that came out.
2: so Burnt Sugar has a new EP coming out and it's really wild I mean the first two tracks are half an hour long combined (laughs) it's (laughs) wild Angels over Okanda uh, which is 18 and a half minutes long and Repatriation of the Midnight Moors 1201 and I love that bass on Repatriation that is so cool We'll the bass that you use what kind of effects do you, do you end up using because the, the sound is amazing
0: well really it's, it's, it's not you know I mean most most players will tell you that it's really in the hands and as I already I told you how my hands became really strong yeah and I'd have to say I have to give a shout out to the pickups because these basses my bass is always I've always used Bartolini pickups Oh. and Bartolini pickups the lovely thing about them is, a lot of musicians, when they get into the studio, they realize that not only do they have bad habits from playing live, because so many things get lost playing live, and in the studio nothing gets lost. Oh. Everything gets so fret noise, any of that kind, all that stuff is is right on tape. Oh, but man. also that they they realize that their instrument is noise. They realized that, you know, there's something in the pots or something, you know, in their pickups. And, and so the first thing I, I noticed about Bartolini's is when I went in the studio, just how quiet the signal was. Oh, okay. And how full and rounded. So in, in the Midnight Moores jam, which is the brainchild of Mark Gilmore, the innermost, a good friend of ours, he treated, he treated the bass sound. A little bit okay. but basically it's it's just there's there's no effects on it wow you know, so it's just it's just bass it's just bass in my hands
3: you. oh that
2: is awesome and i could say the same thing about oconda overdrive and that's really kind of that was your baby wasn't it on the
0: album yes yeah, my baby
2: How what how did you work on that one?
0: Well, it's funny. The um if you listen to the, the main track Angels over a conda, if you listen really, 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 really closely, you'll realize that there are a lot of things going on in there that aren't brought up prominently. Okay. And so what I realized listening to just the individual tracks, that there was really a lovely Fender Rhodes' piano solo by Leon Grunbaum. And what I thought was, there was a segment of my bass part that could be used as an introduction to a new song that led into that into Leon's playing. And so what I did was I cut and pasted. I took the song about seven minutes in and actually used that as, as the beginning of a song. I took the loop out. And brought the actual drums up, Greg Gonzalez's drums up. Okay. And so the beginning section is basically bass, my bass, Greg Gonzalez's drums, and Leon's Fender Rhodes. And then I, I wrote a line for flute and tenor that V. Jeffrey Smith who was the engineer, we did it at his Jam Carver studio in Jersey City. Okay, He basically overdubbed for that first section. And if you notice about maybe three minutes in, there's like sort of like a little, I don't know, cloud of, of whatever and then the loop comes in and, and it changes. And then during that, the second movement of the song, there is actually a a flute and a tenor sax horn section. And what I did for that, um, a good friend, Satch Hoyt, who lives in Berlin, basically he was sent Oconda, and he went into a a studio and cut three or four different flute stems, complete to the whole thing. And I took the flute stems and cut and pasted like little two bar sections to make that section, have V. Jeff mimic it on tenor and then we pasted that on top. Oh my gosh. So it was like a real Frankenstein, yes. but I'm really happy with it. <laughs> I think it's great.
2: Based on some of the other stuff that I've heard from, from Burn Sugar, I mean, that that's fits right in. There's a lot of yes, Frankensteining sir. in, in, in the music that I've
3: heard.
2: <laughs> yes, there is. And I, I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, I've got to get this stuff. I don't, I'm just becoming familiar with Burnt Sugar and I am just hooked on it. It is incredible. I'm so happy that, that I've found the band. Thank you. You mentioned improvising in, you know, things in the studio and, and live. Is, is one more difficult than the other? Is it hard to improvise in the studio to get it where it's, it's recordable or is it, are you just not even worried about that because, you know, it's all going to be cut and pasted afterwards?
0: It's probably easier in the studio because it's kind of an isolated environment and you can just go for it knowing that even if you fall, you can just stop the tape and start over again.
3: Ah, okay.
0: Now, that's a different thing live. Yeah. Because live you have people, and, and you know, any artist of their ilk, I would hope, would take into consideration that they do have an obligation to people who have paid money to see them. They do have an obligation to give them a show. And it, and, and it goes it goes even deeper than that, because I, I see the musician as I, I don't see us as being on a pedestal or anything. I see us as being working stiffs. Okay. I see this as that when we come into a club, we're in there just along with the, the um, sound engineer, with the bartenders. We're in there to make the folks that come through have a, a memorable evening. Okay. And so that when they leave, they say like, "Well, you know what? I had a great time. I'm going to look to see that look to see where that band's playing next. I'm also coming back to this club or to this concert hall or to this arena. I'm coming back again. Yeah. Because I had a good time. So I think that's part of of our responsibility, you know, working with with the the people that that are working with us. Yeah. And so in that case, you have you have an obligation to you know I don't even know if the excesses of rock and roll were really real or if they were just fabricated because they look good in, in Hit Parade or, or or Rolling Stone. But I mean, if people are paying thirty or fifty dollars a ticket and you have like, you know, a sold out arena and you stumble on the stage drunk and don't remember the lyrics and and you know can't play your instrument, I don't that doesn't really resonate with me. No. But the thing is now so you have that obligation, but what we're doing is there will be times when we're playing on stage where it is completely unscripted, which means that you have to to come up with something that's going to be have some substance right there in the moment. Yeah now you could think of that you could think of that as being a pressure situation. you could think of it like that, but I'm blessed. And the band is blessed that basically we're surrounded by professionals. We're surrounded by people who love to play music and have played for a long time. And once you've played for a long time, you've already gone through the things of like, you know, stepping on your cord and unplugging your bass. (laughs) And then realizing that you played for like, you know, 12 bars with no bass in the house. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you've, you've gone through all that. Yeah. So, you know, so basically, there's a certain comfort level that, that you reach. That and I, and I think even Michael Jackson says something to the point that the most, you know, they asked him if it, were, if it was nerve wracking being in front of 100,000 people. He says like actually something to the fact where like, actually, he's he's he's, he's, he's alone in a way. And in a way, you are alone. Okay. Because, you know, if if you just sort of like focus on on your music and the music of the players around you, you're in this little bubble of creativity that supports you, and then you can relax and just play. And I would have to say that's probably the most important thing to any live performer is when they finally gone through all the mishaps to know how to handle them to where they can come out on stage and breathe yeah. and play because if you know even musicians as they're learning their craft they'll find out when they started to play a difficult something that they couldn't play if they paid attention to to their physical nature they'd realize they had stopped breathing ah cuz they got anxious and then, of course, if it's like a fast figure, something like that, you realize that really you need to breathe more because you need to feed your body oxygen so that it relaxes and be as nimble as it possibly can be. So once you get your breathing in place, then, then you know, even if you get anxious, you can breathe to relax and, and get through it.
2: That's fantastic. I never knew that. Man, I'm learning stuff today. It sounds to me like when you're doing improvisational work, though, that you're experienced enough. You're not looking at it as, oh, my gosh, I don't know what we're going to play. It's more of, I now have the opportunity to make something unique tonight.
0: Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And that's what we build a reputation on, the fact that we can tell folks, the concert you saw tonight, only you only you saw this. Yeah. Only you heard this. And that's what that 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 model that you that you mentioned. That's what that means. We can play the same song five nights in a row, and it'll be different each night.
2: Oh, that's amazing! So, when you are playing live, are the songs is the set list full of improvisation, or are you actually starting off with songs that are on the albums?
0: Well, we actually went through sort of like a career. I won't, I won't say crisis, but a, a, a career change, in the fact that in '99 when we came out, we were pretty one of the, pretty much one of the only bands doing conductio,n. Right, and so that kind of made us sort of like the apple of, of presenters' eyes. And we played the Brighton Dome Festival, we played Royal Albert Hall, we did a number of different things. We did um, um, the Benali Blues Festival in, in Paris, which actually isn't in Paris. It's in the suburbs of Paris. Oh, really? And, um, <laughs> and, and there's a story behind that, but I'll tell you that later. Okay. <laughs> um, and so we, we played really, really, really big and nice rooms. But then three or four years into it, like after we did, that depends on what you know, and when we did um, Black Sex and Random Violets, other people were getting into it, and we went the New Kid on the Block. And those big choice gigs weren't coming through as often oh, okay. and we were blessed there was a woman there's a woman by the name of laura greer who is one of the executive directors at the apollo theater and they were getting ready to they wanted to mount a tribute to james brown oh. and they wanted to they wanted to hire a band but they didn't want to hire a cover band so they thought that the best world the best of both worlds would be to hire us to play James Brown tunes in a burnt sugar way. Oh, that's awesome. And so that, we did that, and it went over like gangbusters. Oh, I bet. And then from that, we became sort of like the the band, whereas, you know, you could hire a Fleetwood Mac band, cover band, or you could hire Burnt Sugar to do Fleetwood Mac songs, you know, to caramelize Fleetwood Mac songs, yeah. which would you prefer, which do which you think your, your audience would be more excited to having a new experience with and we, we received a lot of work doing other artists' songbooks.
2: I saw that. I, I did see the Fleetwood Mac and the, there's been a few others, haven't there?
0: We did Fleetwood Mac. I think the first one after James Brown that really, really set the boat sailing was when we did Bowie for Lincoln Center
2: that's the one okay yeah that's the other one i remember now
0: yeah when we we did that one that's when we started to get calls from the walker center in minneapolis and we did i went out to the hammer museum in la and did um we insist freedom now the music of abby lincoln max roach and oscar brown jr um like i said we've done prince we've done sleep with mac we've done steely dan our steely dan show has resonates with a lot of people.
2: That, oh, man. Is is there any recordings of this? Because I would love to hear Sugar doing Steely Dan.
0: There's, there's, I take that back. I didn't, there's no, like, actual recordings because we can't.
3: Oh. (laughs) We can't.
0: Legally, we can't. Right. the, The great thing about, about a lot of these music halls is they already have licenses. With BMI ASCAP and CSEC, oh, okay. which allows you know their artist's material to be played. Yeah, the, these venues have to play this pay a year a yearly license. So we can come into these places and play whomever they ask. Okay, they ask for, but for us to record it, that's a whole different story.
2: Right, right. So if it's re- Recorded, it would be something like an audience member had recorded it or something. Yes. If, if it was, like I was saying, if it, if it was out there on like YouTube or something, it would be an audience recording.
0: Yes. Okay. Sometimes the venue will record them and there'll be a stipulation that is simply for archival purposes. Yeah. And maybe they'll put it up for, for their, you know, their online subscriptions. Right. And right. things of that nature. But for us to actually record it and put it out, we would have to go through the publishing, and and pay for all that Harry Fox and all that yeah. and to mention that after we did that after we did the David Bowie tribute Vernon was so impressed with that that he took us into the studio and we cut those tracks and there wow. is on the shelf a 10-track um Bernd Orchestra plays Bowie record oh, wow. that is still waiting to see the light of day and can I tell you this yes it's fabulous uh-huh. It's
2: fabulous. <laughs> oh, you're killing me, Jared. you killing me. <laughs> it's fabulous. Ah, man. Oh, well, hopefully that'll come out at some point because as a new devotee of Burnt Sugar, I am dying to hear something like that. Oh, man. Well, look, I've kept you for quite a while, I and mean, Thank you so much for spending so much time. If you want to tell me a story about Paris, I'm still recording. If you don't, you know, we can always have you back on.
0: I'll tell you that story. (laughs) So we get get accepted to the um, Benali Blues Festival, and we're, like, mad excited because we're, like, as a band, even though I had been there before with and stuff like that all that, Mm -hmm. as a band, it's our first time to Paris. Yeah. And we're like, ooh, la, la. (laughs) Let's go. And so we arrive in Charles de Gaulle. And we get in the van, and the van takes us to one of the suburbs of Paris. Okay. Now, the way—are you familiar with how Paris is set up? No, I'm not. Paris is different from the American model. The American model was basically there was flight from the city to create the suburbs. Yes. And then the suburbs basically were able to also— to form their own, you know, townships and whatever, so they they kept the money in their tax bases. Right, and right. a lot of the the cities basically went under because now they didn't have any revenue because they only had really sort of like working class people and people who are on public assistance living in them. Yes, well, Paris is completely different. Paris is like really they they kept it for the Parisians, and then they built the suburbs. For all the people who work in Paris, okay, and basically people are bused and trained in to do all the you know I won't say menial but just to do all the the, the working person jobs. Yeah, and then they they bust and train out.
3: Wow, you know,
0: and so like this started you know with with the first immigrants, thing. and that way that way basically they had their own communities because they they would start to model them somewhere they wherever they came from. Right, you know. And so we get to, we think we think that we're going to be in Paris. But no, we're in a we're in a suburb that is as hood <laughs> as as where we were from. Oh wow. <laughs> and so in a way that at first was a disappointment, but then on another foot it wasn't because we were so comfortable because it was hood. Yeah. We knew how to, we knew how to operate. Right. You know? And so even though it was a different language, the hood is the hood. <laughs> yeah. You know? So that, that was our first introduction to quote unquote Paris.
2: Wow. Yeah. Oh, see, I again I didn't know
0: that. I
2: didn't know it was set up like that. That's fascinating. Yeah.
0: So they have like two festivals Banali Blues, which which occurs in all the suburbs, and then Saint which became our our mentor. And we did like maybe about six or seven more shows with them over the years. And they do all their concerts in Paris proper oh, and that's cool. how the, that's how the two festivals coexist.
3: Oh, wow.
2: That's pretty wild. Thank you so much. where can people follow the band? How can they keep, an, keep tabs on the band? Um, are you guys planning on playing soon or uh, supporting the album with touring or, uh, and how can people order the album?
0: So we have a. It seems like most people are into digital these days. Yeah. So we have a Bandcamp page uh-huh. that has like all 18 albums up on it. Oh. They wow. can they can download through there. We also have a website where people can stay abreast of our upcoming shows. Like we have a show on the 25th at the um, Sugar Hill Festival in Harlem where we're doing a tribute to the Mizell Brothers, who are from that neighborhood. Oh, nice. Then the next night, we're going to um, Real Artways in Hartford, Connecticut, Will, Will K. Wilkinson's, Wilkins' place, where we're going to um, bring a band in from North Carolina called The Velt, and we're going to do sort of like a, a no. psychedelic shoegaze dance party. Oh, wow. Between the two bands. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then as far as Okanda, there are there are four brick and mortar record stores around the country that folks can can actually visit and pick up the record or they can also do mail order. Okay. And Mark, those stores are um, Downtown Music Gallery in New York City, Amoeba Records in San Francisco, Dusty Groove in Chicago and landlocked music in bloomington indiana okay and let me say this the official release date is 23rd as probably as you know 23rd of of september which is john coltrane's birthday but for some reason the record stores they don't read the small print (laughs) so they're already they're already out you know they're already out selling them if folks want to get hold of okanda and I, i even have the second order from some of the stores. Oh my god. So it's you know I guess they announced it to their regulars and, and they <laughs> they you know sucked them up. So <laughs> so I'm not complaining about that No, no. no. <laughs> and then what we're going to do on the 23rd that that we have control of is we're going to release a special edition of Wakanda on Bandcamp. And the reason I say this is special And this has been an education to me. We originally wanted to release, Greg Tate and I wanted to release Oconda as our first piece of vinyl. And when we started to call around to the pressing plants because of, I don't know exactly what what the dynamics are, but pressing plants now aren't, are taking orders now and won't be able to deliver your product until a year later in 2022. Wow. That's how that's how backlog
2: man are. it's gotten worse. <clears throat> it used to be six yeah. months. I heard about several months ago I heard it was six a six month wait. Now it's up to a year. Oh my god. It's up to
0: a year now. And so we didn't want to wait a year to put this material out. But what we wanted to do was, was we wanted to stay true to the LP format as far as the way the tunes were configured, and and which what I, what I found out investigating vinyl is Three things, one thing is that it's always a battle between volume and bass, okay, and because of that, you can only have so much music per side, yeah, and it's about it's about the the sweet spot I'm told is eighteen minutes, and the furthest you can stretch it is like about twenty, right, but then you also have to think about things of like maybe you want your bass heavy tunes. At the top to the middle of the record, but not at the end of the record, where the, the grooves are smaller, where it's a smaller circle. Ah. You need more room for it to, to carry the bass and things. All, all these kinds of things. Wow. Right? So for for the Oconda version that's on CD, we actually had to truncate a few tunes. Like, to, so that they would fit within the 18 minutes. Oh. Because we, even the um, Angels being 18 minutes and so, it's really like a 22-minute piece. Oh, wow. And Oconda Overdrive is like five minutes and change on the CD, but really it's a seven-minute, really it's, Oconda Overdrive was really like a seven-minute and change piece, wow. but we had to truncate it into like about 5 something for the LP okay. for everything to fit. So on the band camp, we're going to put the full versions of the songs. Oh, wow. And also we're going to put alternative mixes because there's a mix that V. Jeffrey Smith did that basically highlights the, the tracks that the, the guitarist, Ben Tyree and Andre LaSalle, laid down at the beginning and then builds into the, um, into the track with the full band oh, as wow. opposed to the way the... the um, the C D version is so it, I think I'm really excited because I think between the C D and between the, the digital the digital bandcamp release, it'll give people really a, a, a insight in just how we can meld the same piece of music into different identities. Yeah
2: that's exciting I can't wait to hear that this has been awesome I could talk to you for hours I really do appreciate you spending so much time with me this has just been so much my
0: pleasure man thank you for having me
1: achieve the American dream. The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the
0: problem? What's the problem?
1: Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shot? Would you kill? Yes, I <laughs> my, my mom and
0: My mom is
1: right From airship